Welcome to the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, March 9th. Daylight savings time starts on Sunday. That means I have to get out the owner's manual from my 2018 Subaru Outback to figure out how to change the clock. Great car, but changing that clock is way too complicated. Another thing that's complicated is the behavioral health market, and that's what we're going to talk about on today's show. Specifically, we're going to talk about a big new report from Trillion Health and how the pandemic changed the behavioral health market, perhaps forever. To shed more light on those changes are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? I'm attending the Lake Nona Impact Forum in Orlando. Celebrities, deep science, well-being, politicians, fine art, incredible cuisine, policymakers, and even Deepak Chopra. There's something for everybody, including me. Wow. When are you coming back or are you going to stay? I hear there's snow coming to Chicago. It's supposed to be tomorrow, but we'll see. (laughs) Good luck. Julie, how are you? I am well. I'm getting the side eye from my dog right now, which I'm wondering what that is. (laughs) So he's keeping it real over here. And I'm going back on the road on Sunday. Super exciting, but not to sunny Florida, to cold Boston. Have fun, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you get some good seafood, right? So that that's good. That's right. Uh, now, before we talk about the behavioral health market, I wanted to ask you about your clock-changing behaviors. Uh, daylight savings time starts in three days, and we get an extra hour of daylight. Dave, do you change your clocks on Saturday or Sunday? And what's the hardest clock to change in your house? We seem to change the clocks sequentially as we pay attention to them, but certainly not until Sunday. The hardest clock to reset in our house aren't mechanical. They're the internal feeding clocks for our three Norwegian forest cats, uh, Benny, Buster, and Beatrix. It's not so bad in the spring since they get to eat earlier, but the fall is an ordeal. The squealing never stops. (laughs) I don't even know where to begin with that. Julie, who changes the clocks in your house and what's the hardest clock to change? So my husband and I have the passive aggressive, you know, multi-day to potentially into week reaction to not getting the stepladder to pull (laughs) the analog clock off the wall that's close to the ceiling to just move that hand. I mean, it is like, we really should set up a schedule because it becomes a marital problem. But, you know, at least my car now does it automatically. That's a godsend. It is because I think the hardest part is putting the clock back on the wall, you know, finding the hook or the screw that it hangs on. So For sure. Yeah. You know, speaking of the car, other than the car for me, it's the clock on the oven. You know, first it asked me whether I want a 12-hour clock or a 24-hour clock. I've never used a 24-hour clock. Then I have to set the minutes. Then I have to set the hour. And then by that time, I'm two minutes off and somehow turn the oven on to 330 degrees. Then my wife asked me what I'm cooking. It's all very frustrating, but it happens every time. Okay, let's talk about this report from Trillion Health. 
The report is based on behavioral health claims in the company's database from more than 300 million people through the second quarter of 2022. Trilliant said its analysis of those claims, quote, uncovered massive shifts in the American behavioral health market, close quote. We're all about market shifts here, uh, especially when it's preceded by the word massive. And here are some of the more interesting findings. The number of behavioral health visits rose 18.1% to 82.9 million in the second quarter of 2022, compared with 70.2 million in the second quarter of 2019. Two-thirds of the people who had a visit in 2021 only had one to five visits during the entire year. 40% of all visits through the first half of last year were for anxiety or depressive disorders. 33% of all visits through the first half of last year were telehealth visits, nearly equaling the 35% done in person in an office. And 64% of all telehealth visits in the second quarter of 2022 were for behavioral health, nearly double the 34% in the second quarter of 2019. The report ended with eight conclusions. I'm going to ask each of you to respond to one of them. Dave, here's yours. Quote, behavioral health demand will continue to outpace provider supply, and the gap is likely to widen, close quote. Dave, what's your response to that, and what can we do policy-wise or payment-wise to close the supply and demand gap? It's too early to tell whether the demand for behavioral health care services will outpace provider supply. How's that for taking a firm stand? My instinct is that Trillion is focusing too much on labor supply issues and underestimating the increased capacity that behavioral health tech companies could offer the marketplace. I'd like to put the scale of these behavioral health service numbers into perspective. First, the study indicates that almost 23% of Americans suffer from mental illness. 23%. That's a huge number, approximately 60 million people, far more than I would have guessed. Even more remarkable in some ways is that 82% of these individuals received mental health treatments in 2021. That's almost 50 million people. That still leaves 10 million people not receiving care, too many. But I would have thought the percentage of those not receiving behavioral health care services would have been much higher than it is. If these numbers are accurate, They indicate that the U.S. has a far larger and more substantial foundation for providing mental health services than most health care policy wonks like me would have imagined. That's a good thing. As you mentioned, Dave, two-thirds of those diagnosed with mental health conditions see providers fewer than five times per year. Either they're not getting enough care, a distinct possibility, or large percentages of patients only require periodic tune-ups, quote-unquote tune-ups, to maintain equilibrium. We need to know more about the use patterns of these behavioral health services before drawing conclusions regarding their supply-demand dynamics. Another startling statistic for me is the 45 times increase in telehealth visits for behavioral health from under 1% in 2019 to almost a third of all visits in 2022. Wow. Behavioral health televisits now represent, as you just said, Dave, 60% of all telehealth visits. Given the number of telehealth providers of behavioral health services 
that were in the marketplace prior to the pandemic, I have a hard time believing that this magnitude of increase is possible. That raises the question whether Trillion's data is capturing all of that data accurately. Other questions regarding Trillion's data include whether those who pay for consultations directly without insurance are captured in the data. My sister-in-law provides counseling services and only takes cash paying customers. I doubt these types of visits are being fully incorporated into their numbers. And then one last thing, metropolitan areas have the highest percentages of mental health professionals, and they also have the highest use rates. I'm wondering, could this oversupply in metropolitan areas be driving the demand for their services as it does in other areas of healthcare, you know, the supply-driven demand? So in summary, Trillian's report on the supply-demand dynamics of the behavioral health marketplace is a brilliant start. One final comment, we don't often get the opportunity to break new news on the Roundup, but last night I met Rebecca Bagley, who is the CEO of the Kennedy Forum, the mental health advocacy organization founded by Patrick and Amy Kennedy. Rebecca told me that the Kennedy Forum is about to undertake a massive state-by-state demand study and analysis of behavioral health services. Can't wait to see what they come up with, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it on the Roundup. Yeah, yeah, that'll be a great follow-up to this show. Very interesting. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Julie, any questions for Dave? Well, Dave, I think a lot of what you shared has merit. One thing I found about Trillian's report is that there's a bit of a traditional lens that they're taking on what a lot of this means. And they note health systems really getting into the BH game in a more significant way as being one of the you know potentially helpful trends. Do you see it that way? Do you think health systems providing BH services in a more material way will help meet demand? Hospitals integrating behavioral health into their service mix, particularly for higher acuity inpatient care, could provide very much needed incremental capacity. Also, since I believe as a nation we're significantly overbedded, moving more aggressively into behavioral health could be a smart strategy for generating incremental revenues when hospitals greatly need them. On the negative side, there's a reason hospitals haven't provided mental health services historically. They haven't been particularly good at it, and the services have always been money losers. I doubt hospitals will get into behavioral health in a big way unless payment models change. Add it, Dave. Thanks. Julie, here is your conclusion from the Trilliant report. Quote, the existence of direct-to-consumer providers in the behavioral health sector will likely not alter supply at scale, but has changed the typical ways in which patients receive care. Close quote. Julie, what's your response and how can we best help entrepreneurs and startups scale their behavioral health innovations? Well, this conclusion that Julian draws is an interesting one because I see it in two ways. One is our supply is not well utilized and it's not very accessible. So a lot of what innovators are doing are right-sizing our capacity and creating capacity in places where it's needed. I also think that the supply is not always necessarily the answer when you have innovation. So let me talk about a couple of things. You know, in this access bucket, 
these direct-to-consumer virtual health providers are really driving consumer prices down in a big way. So if you just think about general access, we still have the cash pay 250 to 300 plus an hour kind of service, but we're seeing you know, innovators who are providing telehealth services more around $175-ish an hour, all the way down to you know, some services like e-therapy and open path that you don't hear a lot about that are charging $55 a week or $60 a session, depending upon their business models. And of course, you know, people, a lot of people have heard about Talkspace or BetterHelp and they're more in the $90 to $100 a session range. So releasing a lot of variation, I think, is creating um, a lot of access for people who can pay. The issue I see is that entrepreneurs have largely built these businesses around the commercial population. And very few of them are equipped to serve or even trying to serve Medicare or Medicaid, both in terms of the outreach it takes to really reach those populations, as well as just, you know, some very basic business issues around billing. And so not surprisingly, as we get deeper into this, health plans who are starting to pay uh, a lot of these innovators to be in-network providers they want a more holistic solution. They just don't want something for their commercial population. So entrepreneurs would serve themselves well by really looking at a broader set of the population. Another area of innovation really is in quality. A lot of the discussion that's going on today is what justifies a complete course of care? Well, geez, some people go to the therapist or psychiatrist or psychologist forever. I don't even know what that means, a complete course of care. So, uh, you know, a few entrepreneurs are starting to really track some of the early you know, printed rudimentary outcomes, measuring visit progress via self-reported instruments like PHQ-9 or GAD-7 or HEDIS, HEDIS elements. These are an amazing place to start, especially because health plans are already trying to justify the cost of behavioral health as it relates to medical health. So entrepreneurs that can capture clean and consistent data around what behavioral health is being provided by whom and for how long will be at a huge advantage. I mean, transparently, we work with a company called Grow Therapy that does a lot of this kind of work, and there are certainly others. And, you know, I was really struck, Dave, I don't know if you saw this, but in the joint report, on average, the total charge amounts were 20% higher for patients that have diabetes, hypertension, and depression compared to patients with just diabetes and hypertension alone. So the data is starting to come in in ways that are meaningful. And I personally believe you know, telehealth is here to stay. You're seeing telehealth as a, a beachhead in behavioral health. And the utilization data that Dave talked about is real. I like your point about measuring outcomes, right? Because without that, you just don't know the value of the apps that are on the market. That's great. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? <laughs> outcomes matter, right? Right. <laughs> value rules <laughs> yeah that's right and customers count there you go done right where we heard that before so given that level of investment and the tech enabled models that you described that these companies offer the marketplace are you as skeptical as i am of trillion's conclusion that these companies have not yet altered the supply of behavioral health services yeah i mean we could talk for an hour on this in the sense that you know, some of my comments up front were about how we redistribute capacity of our supply, right? So that definition that they have is very traditional and very focused on, you know, the individual practitioners. But 
we we're not so organized in the way that they serve the market. Mm-hmm. Where I think the innovators really have the ability to shift things is in a lot of the technologies that are used, you know, voice technologies that are used to identify depression, anxiety, you know, and other behavioral issues. Technology and service solutions that can be additive for companion care, for talk therapy. There's all sorts of innovations that are happening that if married with the right kind of service model, provide a lot of extra attention, shall we say, to what the traditional practitioner you know, supply can provide. So I think there's nothing but upside here of what comes from these innovations. I do worry about how mainline, I guess, a lot of these services become because I still sit in this place and I've said this before, where a lot of my mom friends don't know about all the companies that I see. I become a resource (laughs) for so many people (laughs) to just get them a name of one of these companies and a connection to how to think about this whole care world differently. So we have a we have a marketing problem, that's for sure. And if my mom friends don't know it easily, then I guarantee you a lot of other populations don't. Got it. It's interesting what you said about moms, Julie. I was talking with my neighbor last night. He turned 65 and I was explaining Medicare Advantage to him. So we're helping people out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we are one at a time. Right. Now, I don't have any behavioral health apps on my phone yet, but check back with me Monday after I try to change my clocks. So we'll see. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Now let's briefly talk about other big healthcare news. Uh, Julie, what else happened this week that's worth mentioning? Well, to shed a little bit more light on another very traditional way of interpreting our supply, I saw an article this week that the feds are potentially putting some pressure on healthcare organizations that are hiring 1099 clinical workers. So think nurses, you know, other caregivers saying that, well, those 1099 workers create a safety problem because they roll into new hospitals. They don't know the rules. They don't know the computer system. They don't know how things are done in that hospital. And I just want to say, I don't want to sound, you know, unappreciative of the complexities of care settings, but the gig economy is here, people. And claiming that each hospital has to have different rules and different ways of caring for patients might be a little misguided. So we got to get with the program here. Flexibility is where it's at. Yeah, standardization and independent contractors. That's a great topic. Dave, what other healthcare market news should we be talking about? I met Doris Taylor, the CEO of a report, Animet Bio, last evening here at the Impact Forum. Doris is leading the effort to construct artificial hearts from our own cells using the scaffolding of cleansed pigs' hearts. Just amazing technology. She actually showed a picture of heart cells beating in a Petri dish. So today, only 10 people a day get heart transplants in America out of a a need of 2,700 per day. And the transplants often don't go that well. They require expensive drugs to keep the immune system from rejecting the organ. Doris thinks we're only five years away from being able to manufacture fully functional hearts at scale for transplants with our own DNA. Wouldn't that be something? Let her try to change the clock on my oven, Dave. Then she'll (laughs) impress me. No, that's great. We wish her well. Thanks, Dave. And thank you, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. 
And don't forget to tell a friend about the Foresight Health Roundup podcast. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.